Welcome to the Vertical Church Podcast. Now here's Pastor Josh Butcher with today's message. Uh, we're kicking off today, uh, Man versus Wild. Man versus Wild. I do that every time. <laughs> man versus Wife. And we're so excited that you're here today, uh, especially those of you that this is your first or second time uh, joining us. This is a great day. Like This is a, a great time to, uh, to come to Vertical Church. Um, if you're here today, though, here's what I need from you. I need you to be here. Uh, there's four more weeks, so you've got to show up at least three more times, all right? Because if you, the whole series is five weeks long, and if you miss too many weeks, then you get a warped view of what man versus wife looks like. And so I don't want you to have a warped view. I want you to have a, a good view. So four out of five weeks, and you'll be, you'll be set. Also, uh, if you didn't this week, it's totally cool because obviously I did not. Um, make sure you bring a notebook or an or a iPad or, or some kind of tablet with you because you're going to want to take notes because this is going to be good stuff. You know, last couple of times I've preached, I've been real preachy. Uh, this series is going to be real like uh, kind, of, kind of teaching and, and, and diving into some scripture. Uh, let, me, let me say this to entice you to bring something to write notes on. Uh, studies suggest that if you bring a notebook to church, you have a 78% greater chance of winning the Powerball next time it goes over $500 million. I'm not going to ask if you played because I know you did. And um, you didn't win. And so that stinks for us. Um, just kidding. It stinks for you too, you know. Um, hey, let, let's make a deal today. I'm going to... Um, I, I love you. I do. If we haven't met before, uh, I, I love you, and I'm so excited that you're here. But I need you to know something. I'm going to offend you today. I'm just, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get under your skin, and there's something that I'm going to say that's going to irk you. It's going to. I, it has me all week. If I don't uh, irk you, if I don't offend you somehow, if I don't make you say, what are you? Who do you even think you're talking to? You don't know me. If that doesn't come across your mind, then I have not done my job correctly today. Okay? So I want to let you know that up front. All right? I love you, but I'm going to offend you today. If you're married, if you're not married, then think about the future. If you're married, I want you to think back about your honeymoon. I want you to picture in your mind where you went. If you've been married multiple times, think about the person that you're with. Uh, because that would be awkward for them if you were thinking about a different honeymoon. Um, uh, So I want you to think back about your honeymoon. Where did you go? What was the experience like? Uh, Did you have fun? I hope you had fun. That's what a honeymoon's for, is having fun. Um, And and, and I just want you to kind of think back. i tell you what, let's do this. Uh, If you're close to somebody that you didn't go on that honeymoon with, uh, why don't you like turn to them and say, hey, here's where we went on our honeymoon. If you're close to somebody, if you're not, then... You can like just yell it across the room. It's cool. So turn to somebody near you. Everybody's kind of just like looking at me. Where did you go? Where did you go on your honeymoon? We went to Hawaii. Uh, it was it was the best vacation that I had ever taken up until that point in my life. Odds are, your honeymoon was probably the best vacation that you had for a long time. Because when you first get married, you go on the honeymoon and then you can't afford anything else. You just you're living on you're living on ramen noodles and 
and, and tea, you know, that's what you got to do. What are we having tonight, honey? Ramen noodles. Oh, great. You make those so good. Um, you do such a great job. Um, honeymoons are supposed to be special. Honeymoons are supposed to be fun. Honeymoons are supposed to be exciting and, and, and great. And, and ours was, if you don't count day five. <laughs> we went for a week in Hawaii. Days one through four were awesome. Days six and seven were great. Day five, I became a jerk. <laughs> we had a fight, and I'm not going to tell you about that, but there, there is video evidence that, that I am a moron, <laughs> um, and, and I had a fight on my honeymoon. It's totally my fault. I have OCD sometimes. Um, there's this myth, though, and I think it's perpetuated uh, by the movies that we watch and, and, um, and the, the, the books that we read and... and, and the songs that we listen to, there's this myth, and I kind of call it the honeymoon myth, and, and here's, here's how it goes, here's how it goes. Uh, you, you find the one, you know what I'm saying, the one, the, the one, I just love her so much, I can't imagine my life without her, you find the one, and either, either before you get married or shortly after you get married, you have a temporary season of adversity. You know, you have some kind of difficulty that you've got to get through. But once you get over that, then it's all good. Like, once you get through that initial season of adversity or difficulty, then everything's like roses. I mean, it's awesome. There's no struggle. There's not supposed to be any fights. Once you get through the initial kind of tension, everything's good. And if you've been married longer than 17 seconds, you know that ain't true. You know that's not true. You know that what that amounts to is really nothing more than childhood fantasy, than, than, than childhood fairy tales of living happily ever after. You know that when you get married, it take, doesn't take that long for somebody to get stupid. You know what I'm saying? Hey, you've done it. I've done it. I've already admitted I'm a moron at times, so you just go ahead and admit it. You did something stupid, you said something stupid, and it went from, I now pronounce you man and wife, to let's ring the bell. This is man versus wife. It's on. You know what I mean? It's not just a temporary season. For everything that marriage is, and for all the great things that marriage is in our lives, it isn't that. It isn't a fairy tale. It isn't you go through a temporary season of difficulty, and then it's all good. Now, if you're not a Bible reader, you might actually be surprised that, that one of the writers of, of, of many of the letters in the Bible, his name was Paul, he actually wrote about this childhood idea in a, in a book to, or in a letter to the church in the city of Corinth. He writes about this idea, this childhood fantasy. Look what he says. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Chapter 13 is one of the most often quoted pieces, not just in the Bible, but in all literature about love. And, and, and he's kind of wrapping up some thoughts about love, and he says this in verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, now, now this follows this beautiful, eloquent description of, of love and, and, and what love looks like. So let me flesh out this verse for you kind of in a different way. Here, here's what Paul is telling us. He's saying, when I was a child, I talked about love like a child talks about love. And, and, and when I was a child, I thought about love like a child 
thinks about love. When I fantasized about what love would look like, I fantasized like a child. But then I became a man. I I grew up. I got grown. (laughs) I got grown. And when I got grown, I put those childish thoughts and ideas about love behind me. This is how Paul finishes really probably the most famous teaching on love in all of history. You, you hear it at weddings. You hear it uh, on, on videos. You, you see it all over the place. You don't even have to be like really into Jesus. And, and if you got married, you may have used this passage in your wedding. You don't even have to know Jesus. And people love this, this passage. Paul's telling us, look, if you carry... If you carry these childish ideas of love with you into adulthood, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be healthy. It's not going to lead you to the happily ever after that you're wanting. It's actually going to take you from happily ever after to man versus wife. Now think about it. You don't have to be a psychologist or a relationship expert to understand what I'm talking about. How many immature adults do you know that are in relationships. How many, how, many, how many people do you work with? How many people do you, do you go to the gym with? How many people are you sitting beside of? Don't answer that question if it's true. Uh, are really just children with adult bodies, like boys with beards or girls with... Never mind. Um, <laughs> it doesn't work. But I'm going to go there. This is church. Um, let, let, let's just, just be honest. How many people do you know are really just, just children... In adult bodies. The, the, the way they think about all of this is, is, is like a child. You see, the reality is when the honeymoon is over, the feeling of love, the, 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 the excitement, the rush of love that, that, that kind of connected you in the first place dissipates. And you stood in front of your family and friends and you said, I do. And, and, and she said, I do. And I may be on the wrong sides. I don't know the etiquette of that. But, but, but then either the justice of the peace or a minister or a priest or somebody said, now I pronounce you husband and wife. And you left. And at some point, the and changed. No longer was it husband and wife. It was husband versus wife. And if you find yourself there today, If you come to Vertical Church today and that's where you're at, I want to tell you something. You're in the perfect place. I am so excited that you're here because because I believe and we believe there is a way to experience marriage that is not husband versus wife, man versus wife. And, and, And the first step of that is to acknowledge the number one problem in your marriage. I'm going to diagnose every marriage in the room And I'm going to tell you the number one problem in your marriage. You ready? The number one problem in your marriage is you. (laughs) You are the number one problem. You are the, if, if you made a list of problems, here's the problems in our marriage. At the very top of the list, not even, nothing's even a close second. You. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? I'm going to offend you today. It's just the way it's going to happen. You are the problem. And I know you're thinking, you don't know me. You don't know who I'm married to. I'm not the problem. She is. I'm not the problem. He is. Listen, listen, listen. You're right. I don't know you. But here's what I do know. I know you're human. (laughs) And, And unless you are not human, you are the problem. You are the number one problem in your marriage. But again, again, there's hope. There's hope for you. Let's let's. 
we started in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Let's rewind. Let's rewind and pick up what Paul says about love, beginning with verse 4. It's this just beautiful explanation, this beautiful kind of description of love. And let's take a look at it. Let's see how really in our marriage we're the problem. Not them. And it doesn't help. We're going to talk about this here in a second. It doesn't help to point fingers at the person you're in, in relationship with. Because you can't control them. Even if you're married to them, even if you think you can, even if you try, you can't control them. You're the problem. Here we go. Look at this. Uh, Paul, Paul breaks it down. He takes this love, you know, like what is love? Love is this feeling and this rush of emotion. And, and you talk to teenagers and adolescents and they're like, I love her. What does that mean? It means my heart just beats and it's and I can't. And, and Paul says, man, let's, let's, let's leave that behind. That's childhood. Let's get to adulthood. Love is a list of verbs. That's what Paul says. He says, I'm going to give you a list of actions. That's what love is. And see, see, we, 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 we grow up fantasizing about how the person that we, that we fall in love with will make us feel. Here's how she's going to make me feel. Here's how he's going to make me feel. But when Paul says, I want to talk to you about love, he takes it in a completely different direction. He says, he says, love is action. Love is a, is a verb. And I want, to, I want to give you some descriptions. And here's the good news. If you're a romantic, like if you're one of those kind of hopeless romantics and you want the feeling and you want your heart to continue like skipping a beat when she walks in the room or when he walks in the room, I've got good news. If you listen to Paul, if you, if you understand love like Paul suggests that we understand love, not only do you experience the pitter-patter, but you end up with the greatest marriage that you could ever dream of. So let's take a look at this. I'm going to read it all kind of in one, uh, one, one step, and then we're going to break it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Here's what he says about love. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It's not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And immediately, I already know what you're thinking. It's like I'm a mind reader. Not really, but I'm just assuming I know what you're thinking. Because this is what I think when I read this. I can't do that. I can't do all those things. I can't be all of that. I get that. I do. But, 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 but I want to just hit pause before we go any further. I want to hit pause and I want, to, I want to ask you a question. Wouldn't you say that description is what you hope your spouse is? Wouldn't you say, like, like, if I'm not married, then this is the kind of person I would like to, to meet and marry. And if I am married, this is what I want my spouse to be. And I just want to suggest to us just for a moment, isn't it a little hypocritical of us to, to, to say, I want this from you, but I'm not really, I can't do it. <laughs> I want you to be all these things, but, you know, don't expect much from, from me. I can't do it. You see, childish love says, if I can just find the one, <laughs> if I can just find the one one person out of the billions on the planet who's as crazy about me as I am about them, then, then everything on Paul's list will just magically happen. It'll just, it'll just magically. It's like, I wish upon a star and dreams will come true. 
doesn't work that way. So here's the question. Here's the question I want us to think about today. Are you the spouse you want your spouse to be? This is a question we're going to wrestle with today as we read again back through those few verses. Are you the spouse you want your spouse to be? It's no good pointing fingers and you're not this and you need to do this. No, 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 no. Are you the spouse that you want your spouse to be? And, and if you're not, why not? If you're not, that's the only, I just want, why not? All right, let's take a look. Let's walk through Paul's list. Number one, Paul says love is patient. <laughs> nice to start with something easy. You know, let's just, <laughs> let's, let's take a survey. Let's take a survey. How many of you in the room would say, yeah, I'm a patient person? Nobody. <laughs> See, I'm not even patient enough to let you answer the question. <laughs> None of us would say I'm a patient person because we're not. And, and, and patience, a lot of times we're trying to think, well, what is patience? And I want to give you a definition for patience. Patience is the decision to move at someone else's pace rather than pressure them to match your pace. Now, uh, if, 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 you're, if you're running, this is really easy to understand. If you go for a jog, let's say me and you go for a jog, and we're running through the park or something, and you're a faster runner than me, but you decide, I'm going to slow down my pace so that Josh can keep up with me. You exerted patience. You chose to, to move at someone else's pace rather than pressure them to keep up with yours. Patience is choosing. This is the crazy thing. Patience is choosing to do less than you are capable of doing for the sake of keeping up and keeping in step with another person. It, it, it not only applies to, you know, jogging, but there are all kinds of different paces in our lives. There, there, there's the pace of conversation. There's the pace of understanding, of making decisions as a family. There's the pace of career advancement, parenting method. I'm going to, patient says, I'm going to hit pause on my pace rather than push you on yours. I'm going to defer. We're going to see this time and time again as we go through this list. Every one of these, uh, every one of these verbs is about deferring. I'm going to put your plans, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotion. I'm going to put you first. This is what, what we see every time. And, 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 and patience isn't natural. <laughs> That's why I said none of us are like really great at patience because it's not natural. Do you want to know what natural is? Natural is your pace. <laughs> natural is the pace by which fits you. Natural is, natural is why don't you change to fit my pace rather than me change to fit your pace. And so what happens in, 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 in marriages is that, is that she thinks he's impatient and he thinks she's slow. And, and, and she thinks he should be moving up in the company and he feels pressured to take a step that he doesn't feel comfortable taking. And Paul says, Paul says, Paul says, love defers. It, 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 it doesn't pressure the other person to satisfy, to, to speed up so that my pace is satisfied. Love is patient. It, 
it pauses, it, it steps back. Number two, he says love, love is kind. Now, if you're a dude, this might feel kind of soft. It's like, kind? It sounds kind of weak. Love is kind. What about love is strong? Well, you're, you're misunderstanding kind. Kindness is not weakness. Kindness is how love responds to weakness in the one they love. You see, kindness kindness says if patience is love waiting, kindness is love acting. Love, love saying, I recognize this, this weakness that you have. I'm not going to criticize you. I'm not going to ridicule you. I'm not going to make fun of you. Matter of fact, I'm going to lean in and say, do you need to borrow some of my strength? I'm strong here. You're not. I want to be kind. What, what do you do when you see weakness in your spouse? Do you make fun of her? Do you ridicule him? Do you talk bad about him? Do you tell jokes to your friends about her? Is that how you respond to weakness? Or do you lean into the relationship and say, hey, I, 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 want, to, I want to activate my love for you? Unkindness will kill romance. It will squash it. And consistent unkindness will completely destroy a relationship. You know, Scripture doesn't say, Scripture doesn't say that, that it was God's power or God's anger that drew us to repentance. Scripture says it's God's kindness. God's love in action towards us for our benefit that drew us to repentance. So Paul says love is patient and love is kind. And then number three, he kind of gives us this, this trio of, of toxic, toxicity. I mean, it's just crazy. He says love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Now that's quite the trio. That's quite the like three, three words together. I mean, I mean, that's man. Love, love, love doesn't envy. Love doesn't boast. It's not proud. Do you know what all three of those have in common? If it, let's just put all of this together and say it this way. Love is not insecure. Love is not insecure. Love doesn't play the comparison game with their spouse. Love doesn't, love doesn't always need to win so that their strength feels validated. Hey, I'm preaching to myself here. I mean... I know what that's like, knowing that you, feeling like you always have to finish first ahead of your spouse so that you feel like you're good. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't, love doesn't get puffed up that way. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not, it's not proud. And, and here, if, if you struggle with this, I struggle with this. I know what that's like. If you struggle with insecurity, the, these things, the roots of insecurity run much deeper than the relationship in which they uh, manifest themselves. So, so if you're a spouse of someone who struggles with insecurity, let me just tell you this. It's not about you. It's some kind of issue they have that, that predates you probably. Probably goes way back to their childhood and they have daddy issues or mommy issues. I know what I'm talking about. And they're unresolved. Or they're resolved, but occasionally they peek their head back up. And you're like, where did that come from? I don't know. But, but, but you often see this kind of this kind of toxic mix of insecurity expressed in relationships through sarcasm and criticism. And this is the worst of all, man, 
public disrespect. I'm, I am not a lot of things. <laughs> I mess up more than I am willing to admit. <laughs> but I don't publicly disrespect my wife. I brag on her. I want to talk about how awesome she is, how great she is. I'm not like a mushy-gushy guy. I mean, if you know me, I don't, I'm not one for public displays of affection, a little side hug even for my wife, and that's pretty good in public for me. But, but I will not ridicule her in public. I will not talk bad about her. Why? Because she is my wife, and I love her. Have you ever met those couples who they're, they're successful, but they don't have a single nice thing to say about their spouse? Where does that come from? What's going on? It's, it's kind of like, well, you know, if I don't feel good about me, I can't let you feel good about you. So, so I just got to tear us all down. If I'm, not, if I'm not being celebrated, I can't let you be celebrated. So I got to make sure that we're both in the, in the pit. And that's like, that's, Paul says, that's not love. Love celebrates. Love, love rejoices in the success of others. Love doesn't envy. Love pride. Do you know that pride keeps us from celebrating? Because pride is all about me, and love is not all about me. Love is about the other person. But pride, envy, boasting, that's about me. And Paul says it doesn't have a place in love. Number four, he says love does not dishonor. Now, that's not really a subject that we talk about much. Honor. We don't really use that word often, especially in our culture. And, and to really grasp the idea of honor, I need to kind of give you an illustration, kind of get you to, a mental picture of what honor looks like. I want you to think about your favorite hero. Like, like it, could be a, it could be some kind of leader of a, of a company or a country, or it could be alive or dead. It could be like a, a favorite actor or an artist or a musician or or, or a former president, or a former senator, a governor, or a grade school teacher. I don't know. Just, just someone that, that, that you would be ecstatic if you won a prize that included an expensive dinner with the, them and, and you and your family. Like, you're going to dinner with your hero, okay? Once you've got to get that mental picture in your head, how would you behave? How would, how would you prepare for that dinner. When you sat down at the table, how would you interact with that person? Would you be mindful of everything that you said? Would you, would you, would you be mindful of how you said it? You would probably laugh at all of the jokes. You would probably have questions that you wanted to ask and you would engage in the conversation with this hero. And in nearly every way at the dinner, you would put your hero's interests ahead of your own. You want to know about them. You want to know what they're thinking, what they're doing. It's all about them in that moment. Odds are you would bring the very best version of yourself to that dinner and present it to them. That's honor. That's honor. I'm, honor is bringing the very best of me to the relationship. I'm going to give you the very best. I'm not going to give you the scraps. And come on now, how many times do we come home and we give our spouse the emotional scraps of our lives because we've spent the best of us in other relationships? I'm guilty, y'all. 
I know what that's like. I know what it's like to give the best of me to to this meeting and this planning and this this counseling session and then come home with nothing but scraps to give my wife and kids. And Paul says, that's not honor. Honor is reserving the very best that you have for the one you love. Number five, love is not self-seeking. Now, if this sounds like Paul's just repeating himself, it's because he is. <laughs> this is what he said over and over again. Love puts the interests and needs of other people first. And if that sounds scary to you, good, it should. Because it is. Love is dangerous. Love is risky, man. When you put somebody ahead of yourself, then you're taking a back seat, and that's a scary place to be. Number six. Oh, man. <laughs> Love is not easily angered. Have you ever thought, have you, have you ever been in one of those moments, like with your spouse, husband, your wife, and, and, and they finish talking, and you have this feeling like, by the time they finish talking, I was so stirred up inside, I just wanted to punch them in the mouth. You ever had, you ever had that feeling? Or, 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 you know, guys, have you, ever, have you ever said maybe to a buddy or something, and you're like, man, she really knows how to push my buttons. <laughs> he just ticks me off sometimes. I get so wound up. Bro, I got so wound up, I just had to walk away to calm down. Here's Paul's point. Love doesn't get stirred up. It doesn't get wound up. It doesn't get ticked off. But you don't know my spouse. You don't know how they, they push all my buttons. And that's true. You don't know how, how, how they stir me up inside. I get it. That's, that's true. But you want to know what's also true? Stirrees always blame stirrers. <laughs> Stirrees always blame the stirrer. And you'll never blame your way into a great marriage. You'll never blame your way into love. You, the only thing that blaming will accomplish in your relationships is, is ensuring that you live your life at the mercy of anybody with a stir stick. Amen. That's what blaming does. Amen. Your emotions are now controlled by anybody that's got a stir stick and can just whip some stuff up. Your emotions are controlled by anybody that can push a button. And here's, here's what I know. And this is... This is I'm, I love you. When you get stirred up, when your buttons get pushed, here, here, here's the truth. They're your buttons. So, so the issue is you. When you get stirred up inside, it's inside of you, which makes it a you issue. Love, Paul says, deals with it. Love, Paul says, that, 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 that love owns... Yeah, these are my buttons, but they're my buttons, and I'm going to get to work on them. Love, love notices patterns in itself that says, these things stir me up inside, so I'm going to get to work on me so that I don't get stirred up inside, because love isn't easily angered. Love doesn't get ticked off. Number seven, love, oh man. You think patience was hard, and then you get to number seven. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Do you know a record keeper? <coughs> let, me tell you, let me describe a record keeper for you. Here's a record keeper. They keep a mental file cabinet in their brain. 
And every argument or failure or mistake gets the, the, the file cabinet gets opened up and it gets filed away to be recounted when you make a mistake in the future. So the so there's an argument going on, the mental file cabinet opens, file comes out, well last year you da 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 da. Paul says, love, love, love doesn't do that. Now, now they don't have, they don't keep a file on their own mistakes. They're too busy filing other people's mistakes. They don't have their own in there. Just, just yours. There's other people's. Let me help you self-diagnose if you're a record keeper. Have you ever said something like, in an argument, and, and you go, well, you always. You never do this. We, we, why, why can't, why can't you just... Last year we had this same conversation and I said this and you... What's going on? Somebody's keeping records. Somebody's keeping track of... And here's the challenge, man. Here's the reality. The truth is, they're right. (laughs) The truth is, their spouse really did do all of those things. The spouse really did do something stupid. See, the problem is not the accuracy of the record. The problem is the unforgiveness in the heart of the record keeper. That's right. That's the problem. So again, what's the problem in the marriage? The problem is you. It's a you issue. Now, is there an appropriate time to connect dots and discuss patterns of behavior and habits that are not healthful, healthy and helpful? Yes, but it's not in the heat of the moment and it's not by or it's it's by request, by mutual consent and not by you. <laughs> It's by a friend over a cup of coffee. It's by a counselor. It's not by you. Because <coughs> love keeps no record of wrongs. You know what? Love, you know what? Filing wrongs never filing wrongs never fosters love. It only fosters bitterness. And so you're thinking, but 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 I've got to protect myself, and I got to remember all those things. I, I, I get that, but the only thing that you're going to grow in your relationship is bitterness. You're not going to grow an ounce of love by keeping track of all the wrongs that they've done. Only bitterness, love. Let, let's let's just be honest, man. When someone when someone holds your past over you, who has the power? They do. And Paul says that's not how love acts. Number eight, let's just put all of this together in kind of one big idea. Verses six and seven, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love chooses to see the best, believe the best, while overlooking the rest. That's what Paul says, verses six and seven. It says, love actively looks for something to celebrate. Love, love. Every relationship will have gaps, like, like gaps between expectation and reality, between here's what I'm going to do and here's what I actually did. And, and every one of us will fill the gap with something. We'll either fill the gap with trust or we'll fill the gap with suspicion. Well, you said you were going to do this, but you actually did this. You didn't. There's a gap here. Am I going to trust to believe the best about them, or am I going to suspect the worst? Paul says, love always chooses to believe and hope the very best. When there's a gap 
in, in my ex, between my expectation and the reality, love does everything possible to fill the gap so that the integrity of the relationship stays intact. And I know right now you're thinking, but what if I get hurt again? I got hurt before. I trusted and I got hurt. I filled the gap with trust and they betrayed me and I get it. Love is dangerous. Love is scary. It's risky. But you can't have love with suspicion. Suspicion, mistrust, negative assumptions never fosters a relationship of love. Only trust does that. Only believing the best. Knowing that hope believes the best about me, check this out, actually motivates me to be the best for her. See how that works? The fact that she trusts me actually makes me want to be trustworthy. It motivates me. And Paul says, that's it. That's love. That's the list. That's, that's, that's what love does. And again, you're thinking, that sounds great. But nobody can love like that. Nobody can love like that. And you know what? You're right. Nobody can will themselves to love like that. Remember at the beginning, I told you, your marriage has a problem. And that's you. And here's the truth. You cannot self-discipline yourself to love like that. I've been a pastor for several years now. Been in church ministry, gosh, almost going on 20 years. Whoa. And here's what I've discovered. Most marriage problems aren't marriage problems. Most marriage problems are God problems. Most marriage problems are God problems. And, And most, not all not saying all, but but so many issues spring from one of two places. Number one, you're dead. <laughs> not like you're dead inside. He's just dead inside. Not saying that. I'm saying you're dead. Spiritually, you're dead. When, when Scripture decides to talk about someone who is separated from Jesus, apart from Jesus, the image that it uses time and time again is dead. And so one of the places that marriage problems spring from is one of the spouses is dead or both spouses are dead. And here's the thing. A dead spouse cannot conjure up a living marriage. Dead. No amount of self-help is going to make you alive. You're dead. Number two, the other place that it comes from is just selfishness. Selfishness will destroy a marriage. Selfishness is the exact opposite of everything Paul just said love was about. Selfishness, selfishness is all about me. All about my, my wounds, my insecurities, my tendencies, my preferences, my habits are the driving force in this relationship. So this relationship's all about me. And the truth is, the antidote for both of those situations is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can take a dead spouse and transform them into a living spouse. Jesus is the only one who can take selfishness and transform it into selflessness. The solution to your marriage problem is not trying harder and implementing the right strategy or reading the right book together or go all of those things are good but if you're dead and if you're selfish the only hope you have is the love of Jesus flowing into your life you can't technique your way into life you can't you can't technique your way into selflessness Jesus has to transform your heart 
love, when his love flows into our hearts and makes us alive and new and he changes our selfish attitudes, then that love that he loves us with flows out of our lives into our marriages and beyond. And that's the hope. That's We all want marriages filled with love. And the reality is the only way to have a marriage filled with love is to surrender to God, to the God who is love personified. Greater love has no one than this that lay their life down for their friends. And I have called you friends, Jesus says. Jesus says, I want you to love as I have loved you. First John would say, God is love. How can we love each other fully if we do not know the one who is love in a body? We can. At the beginning, I told you I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you again before we pray. Are you the spouse, your spouse, or are you the spouse you want your spouse to be? And if you're not, why not? Let me pray for you this morning. Lord, we come into this room in all kinds of different relationships. Some of us have been married for a couple months. Some of us have been married for decades. Some of us are single. Some of us are divorced. Some of us are single and we're not interested at all. And some of us are single and looking actively. And yet we all come in here with the same kind of common ground. If we're struggling with love then most likely it's coming from one of two places, God. We're either dead or we are selfish. Jesus, I know that you can solve both of those. Today, you know, while we're praying, you might be sitting there thinking, man, I get get it. I've tried. I'm exhausted. We've tried so stinking hard to make this thing work and nothing we do No trick that we try, no group that we go to, no counselor that we see has been able to fix this problem. Let me tell you, it's because the problem is you. (laughs) The problem is in you. And the antidote is the solution is not more techniques and more tricks and more books. The solution is Jesus. Jesus taking your dead life and turning it new. He wants to do that today. I want to ask you real real quickly before I pray for us again and we wrap up. You say, Pastor Josh, I'm ready to take that step. I'm ready to take the step where I confess my belief in Jesus. I have a lot of questions. I may have a lot of doubts. And, and, I, and I can't promise you those are going anywhere when you take this step. But I'm ready to experience love personified. I want the love of Christ to flow into me. So it can flow out of me. I'm ready ready to confess Jesus, believe in Him, accept His sacrifice for me. If that's you today, I want you to just pray this prayer with me. We'll make it real short. You just say these words. You can say them out loud. You can say them under your breath. Just pray. Just say, Jesus, I admit that I need You. That I am separated from You. I believe that you did what it was what was necessary to come to me. You died for me, you rose for me. And today I confess, I declare that you are my Lord, my Savior, 
the one I'm following, the one I'm trusting. Let your love flow into my life. Make me new today. I believe in you. If you just prayed that prayer today, friend, Jesus has just done a transformation in your life. You may not feel different or you may feel like your heart's beating a little bit faster than normal. Your, your hands might be a little bit sweaty. Might be a little bit clammy. All of those things, that's just our body reacting to something monumental that has taken place in our life. Jesus has just changed you forever. I want to encourage you to do one thing, more, one more thing today. If you prayed that prayer, you invited Jesus in your life. Nobody's looking around. Everybody's got their heads, clo- heads down and their eyes closed. Would you just slip your, I'm going to count to three. Would you just slip your hand up and right back down? Nobody's looking, nobody's peeking. Nobody's going to know. I'm looking around just so I can pray for you when we close out in prayer in just a minute. If that's you on the count of three, would you just slip your hand up? One, I, I, I prayed that prayer today, Pastor, and, and I want you to pray for me. Two, my life has been changed and I've been made new. Three, would you just slip your hand up and right back down? Up and right back down. Thank you. Thank you. Some of you are a little nervous. I don't know. I've done it before. It didn't seem to take the last time. It's cool. Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray for you one more time. Jesus, we're so excited to be here today. Not only because uh, we are on track to discover how we can have the greatest marriage possible, but Lord, it all begins with becoming the person that we need to be. Becoming the spouse that that our spouse needs, becoming the spouse that we want them to be. So today, God, whatever you're doing in our lives, however you're changing and transforming us, we invite your work in our our hearts, in our lives. We love you, Jesus. Thank you so much for your life, for your sacrifice for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We always appreciate hearing how God is moving in your life. We all have a story to tell, and we'd love to hear yours. Please visit verticalchurch.tv and click on the little pencil icon called Amen Corner to tell us your story. Also, if you'd like to support the ministry of Vertical Church financially, you can do so by clicking the giving link at verticalchurch.tv. Thank you again for taking the time to join us as we point those far from God to life in Jesus.